Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a Remembrance Day installment of History Hack. Today, Andy Locks with us, trustee of the Great War Group and boffin and tour guide and general all-round World War One guru. And so is Holmes, who I've done numerous World War One books with as well. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. We are pretty much going to carry on from where we were in July, weren't we? So we released a, an episode on the 1st of July about successes on the Somme and kind of pushed the boundaries of people's understanding of the battle a bit for that part. And we're going to do that at the other end of the battle today. Yeah, kind of, and a, and, a, and a bit of what was in the middle, hopefully, as well, because trying to make sense of um, the battle by its end, you kind of need to look at how, how we'd sort of reach the stage that we had. And also, I'm maybe going to throw a little bit of um, maybe a dispute on when this battle actually does end uh, yeah. as well. Which is what home, that's a bit of homes that uh, you love a bit of that, don't you? You did that in our song book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, primarily, I was just going to talk about the, the men trapped on um, Redan Ridge on the 19th, yeah. 18th onwards for a few days. Yeah, because uh, it definitely doesn't end for them on the 18th of November, does it? Yeah, that's right. Cool. Okay, so I guess let's do, you want to do a highlight reel, but let's do July and August really brief because I want to focus on when the weather starts to turn and why we're still going by that point. But just give everyone, give everyone a brief overview. So we did, we ended the last episode, didn't we, sort of with the uh, 1st of July has been successful in the south um, and non-existent in the north. So what happens over the next few weeks, Lockie? Yeah, I mean, so July, I kind of... There was never any hint of stopping the fighting after the 1st of July. I mean, it hadn't gone well, mostly. That's that's true, and that's also an understatement. Um, but with the French still under pressure at Verdun, you know, Germans still occupying territory, all the reasons we went to war in the, in the first place haven't been resolved. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of maintaining the coalition that Britain was part of, actually it was kind of good for the French and the Russians to see the British getting stuck in and losing a bit. And I know that's a horrible thing to say, but actually, you know, carrying on after the 1st of July was really important from a coalition point of view. Not only that, it's still kind of hopeful of decent gains, all right? I mean, I kind of, I, although I occasionally use a, use a boxing analogy for, um, for, for, for July on the Somme in the sense that it's almost like you, you, your boxer walks out ding-ding round one and then immediately gets their nose splattered across their face. 
um, and there's blood all over the the show. But actually, through the rest of the month, they kind of get their act together and 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 continuing the boxing analogy for a second, they're able to land a few decent body punches mm. um, through July. Um, the the capture of Bazantan Ridge and Pozier Village being being two decent ones on the 14th and 23rd of July. So they're, they're, they're functioning a bit better um, by that stage, the, the British Army. Um, and also, Andy, on the, on the 14th, so in the Battle of Basington Ridge, they already, they'd already evolved their tactics again. I think that was the first, the first night attack, at least, of the Battle of the Somme, where soldiers went out into no-man's land before zero hour, so they had less distance to cover. And unlike the events of the two weeks before, instead of having an artillery barrage that went on for five days or so, they just had a, 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 an artillery barrage of minutes, but it was just where it was targeted. So they're, you know, that, that corps is already sort of it's evolving its tactics and learning from its mistakes and working out where it can, you know, Im- make improvements. For sure. I mean, the main reason being that the 1st of July, although the, the offensive action was going to continue, the, the tactics and the kind of the results of the 1st of July was was unrepeatable. Um, so they had to change things up in some way. And then, you know, they started doing that on the 2nd of July, really. But yeah, these things start changing um, through the month. Now, you get into August and um, there's a period that has come, you know, the high command comes in for quite some stick. Uh, actually, and it comes off the back of um, uh, a note that Haig sent out to his army commander, um, Rawlinson, and it's essentially, this goes out on the 2nd of August, um, uh, and it stresses that our troops have been pretty severely handled and they must be tired, uh, but the Germans are still too, uh, are in the same state. They're still too formidable to be rushed without careful and methodical preparation. And so this attritional wearing out phase comes in um, and so you don't have as many like big attacks on the scale of certainly not the first July but not even the scale of Bazantown Ridge um, either you've got much smaller scale actions aimed at wearing down the Germans and keeping British casualties relatively low now, there's a lot of there's not a lot of cohesion in this is there like from from Haig's level in terms of controlling these smaller battles and what's going on it's pretty ad hoc and there's not a, there's not sort of daddy at the top reining everybody in is there no, and the same goes for Rawlinson, 4th Army Commander. He's, he's, he's not on top of this. And um, throughout the, the, the sort of two months that follow the Bazantan Ridge uh, and then go up into the mid, middle of September, all right, the gains are uh, fairly modest. Um, they gain about six square miles for the cost of about 126,000 casualties. Um, Pryor and Wilson have done the work on this and actually they've worked out that in terms of ground gain versus casualties taken this is worse than the 1st of July Um, what they don't quite tell is how many Germans were killed during that time though and I think that's quite an important factor yeah we're going to come on to that later aren't we that's that's one of the myths we're sort of going to dispel about the failure of the Battle of the Somme but tell us about mid-September because that's when they decide this is effectively the last shot at ending the war in 1916 isn't it they're still hoping they can smash the Germans and, and how do they go about it yeah, exactly. So Haig's brief on um, at the beginning of August had said, right, expect big action in the middle of September. So that was what they were going to go for. And by that time, they had their first tanks ready. So what they do on the 15th of September is launch the biggest attack that they'd launched since the 1st of July with three dozen or so tanks and, and very few of them get into action. And to be honest, although there are gains made on the 15th of July, it's a, it's a bit disappointing. 
Um, and it's, it's particularly disappointing on the right flank and in the centre of the battlefield at High Wood. And there are various reasons for it. Um, the, the Corps commander in that area, Pulteney, makes a few interjections that aren't particularly useful. They didn't quite know, well, it's understandable, they didn't know quite how to handle the tanks, but they did things like leave lanes for them in the sense that the artillery didn't beat the ground up, uh, in front of where the tanks were going to go. Trouble the was. big mashup. That sorry, go on. Yeah, you finished. Yeah, no. The, the trouble was um, the tanks were assigned to attack strong points, yeah. um, and so with the artillery not beating the strong points up, if for whatever reason the tank didn't get into action, didn't reach the strong points, you had an untouched one there that was able to inflict casualties. Yeah, I think for me, Holmes, the one that stood out, we covered it from the 47th London Division that day in September, and we covered it, didn't we, from the Labour leader's son who was killed on that. But that, for me, that stands out as being, what was the word you coined on down the pub, a catastrophe? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. The London's in Highwood was pretty abysmal, wasn't it? It's even worse there because, um, they, you know, through the, the weeks of fighting at High Wood, they'd actually closed up very close to where the, um, the, the German lines were to the point where they couldn't bring their heavy artillery to bear down on it. And they were essentially told, don't worry, the tanks will, tanks will sort it out. And they never did. So, um, yeah, high losses for the Londons there and little gain. Divisional commander goes, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He got binned yeah. afterwards. A bit harsh considering he'd voiced yeah, yeah. concern to, to Pulteney. Holmes? I was just going to, fifth, the Battle of Fleurs course alert, that was the first time that you saw the New Zealand troops involved on the Western Front for the first time as well. I think, so people will say then, right, so we didn't win the war with that. It was all right, some of it was a catastrophe, some of it was all right, but it didn't win the war. So now the weather's going to start to turn and we're getting into October and November and this is what you really wanted to talk about. Essentially, it stops being about winning and knocking the Germans out, and about grinding them down and getting ready for next year. So how does this concept evolve? So, so actually, just before the weather turns, and basically what, what gave Britain the idea that they could still grind a result out, is you've got these, these couple of days in late September, so, so 10 days after the disappointment of Fleur Corselet, you have 4th Army attack on the right flank towards uh, Morval and Gurdacourt and Le Boeuf, uh, and on the following day, Comble as well, in which they effectively didn't rely on the tanks. They put together a, a, a decent artillery barrage that the troops followed up to closely and they captured those villages. And like, all right, okay, well, that's, that's something. That's a, that's a good start. And then the following day, Reserve Army on the left flank captured Tietval. And this was, this was of, first day objectives, wasn't it, from July? It was. And, and they did have tank support um, there as well. And, it, and at least one of the tanks did something useful. Um, and funnily enough, it's, a, it's one of the divisions that we talked about on our first of July podcast, 18th Division, that did so well on that day. Well, they do well again at Tietval and actually start pushing up um, onto the high ground behind Tietval, which would give observation of the battlefield to the north. So this is pretty valuable stuff, and, and this, is, this is good, and then the rain starts coming. Mm. And oct- October's a pretty bleak time, actually, because um, it's not just the rain that makes conditions difficult. You also have uh, trouble in the air, uh, not just with observation because of the cloud, but actually the, the kind of technological tide is turning a little bit. Yeah. And, and it's the, the, like a pendulum, the air war throughout, isn't it? And at this point, it swings wholly back towards the Germans. Yeah, it does. They get a couple of new fighter aircraft that, that really you know make life tough for the Royal Flying Corps. Um, so, yeah, for, for those reasons, yeah, October is, is sticky. Um, there's some small gains 
um, made nonetheless. Uh, 8th Division managed to eke out a few yards near Le Transoir. 18th Division um, do get up to Regina Trench. And the rest of the Schwaben Redoubt um, on the high ground behind Tietval was eventually cleared as well. And, and with those... I mean, October, by this stage, it's less about big advances. I don't think they're hopeful of breaking through anymore, but they want to get themselves into a decent position to see out the winter at least. Mm. Um, uh, but for Fifth Army, actually, the capture of the Schwaben Redoubt unlocks possibilities um, because now with observation over the Ancre, um, there's the opportunity to see where the German positions are in one side, beat them up, advance a bit, and then see where the German positions are on the first side again, beat them up and advance a bit. And so you can sort of leapfrog up the river valley that way. And that was that was on Goff's radar. Um, this is what the rest of the battle is about, isn't it? It, it kind of is. Um, so November, uh, the, the weather was still kind of crap. Uh, in the early stages, um, and they hadn't planned to go very far. Goff still got his ideas on, you know, working his way up the Ancre, because if he can do that, then they might be able to get Bocorn, Redan Ridge, and if he can get Redan Ridge, then he can unpick Serre, and if he gets Serre, then Puisier and Gomcourt can fall, and then things can start moving, um, potentially. You've also got a conference um, that's going to take place in mid-November, um, and that's at Chantilly, in which Haig and the others were going to meet with the French. And um, Haig would have loved a nice win um, before going to Chantilly. So um, a few days uh, before, uh, Haig goes to Goff or sends his uh, chief of staff to go and see Goff, uh, really, and says, look, what can you do to get me a win? We'd love to be in Beaumont Hamel with 3,000 prisoners in the cage ahead of this conference. That would help us out a lot. And so they launched this attack on the 13th. Um, and actually, it wasn't too bad by the standards uh, of the day. On the left flank, it didn't really work up at Serre. Um, but in the Ancre Valley, uh, 63rd Division made some decent gains. And on their left, 51st Division did capture Beaumont Hamel. Um, and, yeah, they, they do get over a 1,000 prisoners um, through. So Haig's able to go to Chantilly fairly, um, fairly confident, really. This is good news for him. But then um, what happens in the ensuing five days before we get to the official end of the battle? Because they end up advancing in snow flurries, don't they? Yeah, they did. Essentially, Hay goes off to Chantilly saying to Goff, right, don't do anything until I get back. Um, while he's away, um, Goff talks to his corps commanders, Portney and Jacob, um, I think. And um, uh, essentially, they decide, yeah, we, we could potentially make a, a decent little bit of ground here. Now that we've broken the, the crust, uh, as it were, and got through the German first positions, there's a chance for us to press up onto Redan Ridge uh, and, and really take some decent uh, tactical objectives. Uh, and Neither so of these two are slouches, are they, as far as Je- World War One generals go? No, they're not the worst of them. Jacob certainly isn't. Um, I think think he's he's pretty sound. Um, the they bring in thing is though <laughs> everyone's tired by this stage. Yeah. Uh, and so what they do for the attack on Redan Ridge is bring in a unit um, that they'd that had been fairly well smacked about in July and then brought back down in October to take um, part in actions on the south side of the Ancre. It's this thirty second. Uh, division that had mm. assaulted Tietval on the first day. After their attacks in October got cancelled, um, they basically got stuck on work parties for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and so with less than 24 hours to go on the 18th 
of uh, November before they were attacked, they were told, right, drop your shovels, you're marching over the other side of the river and you're going to attack Redan Ridge. There's an element of mental torture going on here because before that 13th of November um, attack goes forward, you have this situation where the men are com- uh, constantly being told to get ready. No, you're not going. Oh, actually, get ready. You are going. Now you're not going. Oh, now you are going. And so there, it comes to a point, doesn't it, where they pick the 13th, where I can't remember who says it to who, whether it's Haig to Goff or Goff to Haig or the other way around, where they say, look, we just have to either go or don't, but this is really driving the men crazy. We need to make a call and stick to it. Yeah, the the weather would have to be unspeakably atrocious for you not to attack on this day. So so plan to attack essentially, and they did on the thirteenth. And maybe the same thing was said about the eighteenth. Maybe it wasn't, but the weather was unspeakably atrocious. And not only that, these thirty second division boys, what marched over, they hadn't had any hot food in fifteen hours, uh, and some of them only reached their jump off trenches about ten minutes before zero. Mm. Um, but coming um, back to them in just a second but also it's, it's not just them Holmes and I we covered the second division didn't we for the footballers battalion um, and they too had been rinsed at Delville Wood in July then they'd been sent down to Guillemont in August and now they were up there as well so these are at this point the troops that are going there are no fresh troops are there to go in not at this stage no and those that even haven't been in action I mean the 32nd division hadn't been in action for a while but still they had not been sat around you know, pampering themselves in comfort. You know, they they had been working hard and then had to drop it and shift. I, I was just going to say also that the weather was quite significant here. I think if you look, at, you know, from the beginning of November onwards, it was very cold. It was very wet. When you've got the, if you look at the Northumbrian division when they attacked the but the Wilding Corps in early November, you know, there there are reports of men drowning on the way up there, and then there's mud. Similar stories of mud. Um, when the footballers battalion attacked at Sare a few days later, I think it's almost like we've got this sort of Passchendaele-esque view of mud and really glutinous sort of liquid surface. And I think it was almost applicable here as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and it, it's the same. I think Charles Beam, the Australian historian, who was no stranger to the Flanders mud in the end, you know, I think he said that this was the worst he'd seen, the winter of 1916-17 in the Somme sector. It was statistically the coldest winter in living memory. Yeah. In, Europe, in Northern Europe, um, that is so. When you read those accounts, they're not exaggerating about just how cold it got. Um, Holmes, we mentioned this already, but you're going to talk us through uh, someone we covered in the book because um, there's so the non-Clementure um, people they sit down, don't they? And they work out the names of the battles and the dates the battles were fought, and they decided to cap the Somme on the 18th of November. Uh, not the case for the people you're going to tell us about, and they're 32nd Division, which Lockie's been talking about, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the people we're going to talk about, well, there's, there's two elements to this, really. There's the 97th Infantry Brigade who attacked as part of the, as part of the um, 32nd Division. And then there's also the men, you know, who, who were involved in subsequent actions as well. But uh, as Lockie said, you know, the 32nd Division were tasked with capturing Redam Ridge um, on the 18th of November. Um, zero hours planned at 6.10 in the morning. I mean, as you also mentioned, some of the men didn't even reach the jumping off positions until a few minutes before zero hour. Those ones that did make it there at one, two in the morning, arguably didn't fare any better because they had to stand all night in the slow, in the snow, in their jumping off positions. So they weren't in great condition when it came to six thirty, six ten in the morning. But anyway, at six ten in the morning, the British barrage opened and the men clambered out of the trenches and herded towards the German lines in a freezing blizzard of sleet. Um, 
there was snow lying around and it was also very muddy as we've also talked about and they were following white tapes that had been put across no man's land um as had happened on the Somme many times before, the attack wasn't a success. We're not going to go into details about the attack and where it, where it sort of successes was and where it failed. But what's really important is here is some men from the 97th Infantry Brigade actually did capture their objectives. They, they crossed the first German front line in Munich Trench and they managed to take and hold um, a portion of Frankfurt Trench. And what was incredible, by the end of the first day, so in the evening of the 18th of November, they still held this portion of trench. Um, the Germans didn't know that they were there. I guess it was still quite confusing from the battle that had gone on earlier in the day. But at the end of the first day, they were there holding this uh, portion of the German trench, um, and the Germans were none the wiser. Official reports say that the party that held the trench was made up of seven officers and 123 other ranks by this stage, and the trench was in very poor condition because it had been smashed up by the British artillery earlier in the day. Um, lack of supplies was also an issue, even at this stage. And men had to sneak out into no man's land to collect water from shell holes. On the second day, so we're now talking about the 19th of November, they tried to fortify their position further. So the Lewis guns were placed at certain um, strong points around the trench. The British soldiers handed over their small arms ammunition to the Lewis gunners so they had as many bullets as possible. And then they were using German Mausers, German Mausers by this stage. Um, that night they'd completely run out of their iron rations. Water was still a problem. So they went back into no man's land to recover food and water from the dead. Now, bear in mind they they'd already, they were in the German second line position at this point. So when they got into no man's land, they had to cross over the German front line position and then go, get through the barbed wire and then go into no man's land, fish around for water and food and then bring it back. And they managed to get away with it. The Germans still weren't aware of them. It was only on the third day that the Germans started to get suspicious and they sent a party to investigate and then a desperate battle ensued. But even then, the British gave as good as they got and despite being outnumbered, the Germans actually retreated. Um, the, the men of the 97th Infantry Brigade sustained more casualties. Um, but they, they, again, they still held the trench. The Germans hadn't pushed them out of it. Later that night, I think they realised that the situation was getting desperate. So two men from the 11th Borderers, Company Sergeant Major Johnson and Private Dixon, crept out of the trench that they were holding, again moved over the German front line trench, crossed no man's land, and made it back to Brigade HQ at White City. And when they got there, they informed the officers about the, the plight of their colleagues who were holding this German second line position. And then after hearing this, a rescue plan was decided upon. But the rescue plan was slightly muddled. So... On the fourth day, this is 21st of November now, a British aircraft flew, flew over the men stranded in the trench and one of those men bravely crawled out into no man's land, lay on his back and tried to signal to the pilot with pieces of shirt that was torn up. Um, at 9.30 that day, um, guided by the two men who had made about the day before, a rescue party set out from the British lines and moved towards the German trenches with a view to trying to rescue them, but they were unable to find a suitable gap in the German wire, so they withdrew. On the fifth day, so this is now the 22nd of November, they're still holding the stretch of trench. The Germans haven't forced them out. The British aircraft flew over the trench and tried to drop supplies, but the wind caught the bag and the, and the occupants watched helplessly as the bag flew into the German lines. And then the pilot signalled, coming tomorrow. But this really confused some of the stranded men. Some of them misread it as meaning, come in tomorrow, as in, you come in tomorrow. So somewhat perplexed, they decided to stay in the trench but despite this, a second rescue attempt was mounted. So the British um, 
moved off from positions, uh, their positions in Wagon Road. Um, and they went out into no man's land, but all the, they didn't advance any further. They were there to provide cover in case the stranded men were able to break their way out. Now, the stranded men didn't even attempt to break their way out because of the confusion around the message earlier. So they, at the end, no attempt was made. So the British went back into their trenches and the Germans and the British are still holding, still in, still in this German stretch of trench. On the sixth day, the 23rd of November, the Germans became quite impatient and launched a furious attack. Uh, the defenders were sort of given a bit of notice because the Germans started selling their position. But again, a fierce hand-to-hand fighting took place. But again, like before, um, the Germans were successfully repelled. Not only that, the British took eight German prisoners. Later that day, Brigade HQ decided to put a final rescue attempt together. So men from the Lancashire Fusiliers and one company from the Royal Inner Skilling Fusiliers we're going to cross no man's land at 3.30 and try to break out the men who were trapped in this German trench. The, res- it, the rescue attempt got off to a good start. The initial wave of troops managed to reach the German front line positions. It then faltered with the, me- the second wave where the men arrived at their positions at different times. The third wave was then supposed to cross over the captured first line position and the second line position and then rescue the men trapped in, the, in the, the, the German trench and then bring them back. But because of the breakdown of the first and the second wave, the Germans, the British didn't, the third wave didn't actually manage to get to the captured British troops. And then in the late afternoon, they withdrew back to the safety of the British lines. On it's the 7th, just, I mean, just this, bonkers. I mean, this, this goes on for another day. So yeah. on the seventh day, the Germans send in a captive Royal in a skill in Fusilier from the rescue attempt the day before with a message that read, surrender and you are assured of good treatment. But it went on to threaten that if they didn't, German forces would come over in staggering force and they could take what was coming to them. And what's astonishing at this point, when they get this message and they've been there for seven days, there's little hope of rescue. The men, the trapped men took a vote. They could have given up. They could have given up at any time. They could have given up on the day one. They already received their objective. They were stranded. But they took a vote on the seventh day, so this is the 24th of November, and they vote, voted overwhelmingly to remain defiant and stand until the last map. After that, the Germans shelled the trench, and then they got onto the eighth and final day when German patients finally ran out. Um, but they basically threw everything at the, the men trapped in this small stretch of German trench. And it was only the cries of the Germans that the British, British had taken prisoner in the previous attack that stopped their assault. So of the 120 men who initially took this portion of the trench, 15 unwounded soldiers staggered out. They were extremely in, in extremely poor condition due to a lack of food and a lack of sleep and could barely stand. And apparently a German officer who stood in front of his captives apparently said, is this, is this what has held up the brigade for more than a week? Now, when we did our Sombuk, we were lucky enough to meet the relative of Lieutenant George Neil Higginson of the 16th Lancashire Fusiliers. Now, in the rescue attempt, he was the one tasked with leading the third wave. So he was going to cross over the first wave, the second wave, and then break out the trapped soldiers and then bring them back. Now, as we know, the first and the second wave failed. So he wasn't able to actually reach the trapped British soldiers. And he died in that rescue attempt. But What's interesting from his service file is it really really gives an example of the fog of war in that after his death, the army were trying to work out what had happened to him. They they took witness statements from, I think, seven soldiers. Three of them said he got hit somewhere between the first and second line. 
One of them said he got here. He got hit near the third line. I think a sergeant said he got hit by a shell as soon as he went over the top. So there's a real inconsistency around what people saw and when. And then in the end, they got a more detailed statement, I think, from a sergeant who um, said that he was hit between the first and second line and the sergeant had actually seen him, gone over, he was dead, and dragged his body into a shell hole and covered him with a waterproof sheet. And I think that's the version that the army went with. But, Alex, we met Higginson's. Was it his great niece? It was, yeah. It was was like a side... He didn't have kids. It was like a side swipe in the family tree, wasn't it? But it was, yeah, trying to... And it felt, it's the only time we've ever been to meet anyone when I just felt pretty fucking hopeless, if I'm honest, trying to explain to this lady what had happened to her relative. She came with photo albums, didn't she? And and to just say, look, we can't actually tell you what happened because nobody knows. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, um, there's that sort of saying, never meet your heroes. Um, but I'd always been um, quite keen on this story as well. And when she brought the photo album... It was sort of him pre-war and him, I think, initially when he signed up. Um, but he looked like a lovely chap, you know, who's organising all his weekend camping trips. He's an expert in natural history. He's got all these photos and sketches of butterflies and flowers. You know, I mean, it really sort of brings it home to you, actually, about what a decent chap he was. That's the closest I've ever seen um, you to losing it when we've met a family. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's only because we met her in a bar in London, didn't we, like in the afternoon, that I was the only thing that stopped you from having a good old I'm, I'm almost close to losing it again now you've mentioned a bar in London, to be honest. Oh, my God. Oh, please. Um, so, yeah, it definitely certainly wasn't over for those men. And uh, I have no regrets about the fact that we we sort of, we were going to go to the 19th on the battle, weren't we, and do a Died of Wounds. And we, we cut that poor chap in the end to be able to tell that story. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And the song is synonymous with failure, Lockie. Brits hear the word and cringe at the futility. But Germans were beaten to within an inch of their lives. How close were they to collapsing at the end of 1916, realistically? Well... Total societal collapse, I don't Sorry, think... Sorry, that's like a PhD yet. question I've dumped on you no, You've got okay. 30 words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of. Um, I kind of want to go even kind of push the Somme on a little bit further um, than, than that, because when you talk about the Battles of Nomenclature Committee, I, my, my feeling is actually if you, if you push on yet further and look at the 1917 
actions in that area with the same units, you're going to come with a much different perspective um, to all of this. Anyway, what what, what goes on? The the German army, um, it's the kind of end of September. Those two um, days when the the sort of Morval and um, Gurdekor and then Tietval fall, it's around that time that the Germans start making decisions that are going to have a profound effect on on their war efforts and not all of them make good sense uh, i have to say and it's come off the back of their immense numbers of casualties um i mean up to october now don't forget they're fighting at verdun at this time mm-hmm. as well german western front casualties up to october um killed 350,000 now I know we we think of you know the Somme as being an immense British bloodletting, but in the whole campaign, um, Britain had 125,000 killed. That's nearly 50% of Britain's casual dead for the whole war, isn't it? It's it's, it's a huge huge number. Um, wounded uh, 1.4 million Germans on the Western Front, I and mean, altogether through hospitals up to October, they'd put three million men mm. through them, and yeah, you know, a lot of them had come back. Not only that, they start they start like I say, making decisions that are going to have a big effect. And one of them is <laughs> they can't do this anymore. Immediately they need to change tactics. Um, and, and this tactic that they've had so far where they where they hold the front line in force and defeat attacks when they come, and if there is a break in, they counterattack immediately and take the ground back. Halton bust to haltenness, that has to go. Because now British firepower has become so intense on trench lines as to make them unholdable. Okay, so they have to adopt a new technique involving outposts, you know, single or pairs of men with a machine gun or even snipers in shell holes just to make, just to not present a target, essentially. And that, that befuddles uh, the British for a little bit, this, this move to outpost style warfare. But it is, a, it is a progression and it's a step on the road to restoring movement to the battlefield as well, not just, you know, holding trench lines in force. Um, so that's one thing they do. Another decision they make is to build themselves some new defensive lines. Um, and that's going to be some miles in the rear. And, you know, they end up building a series of defensive lines, um, the Flandern lines, the, the Wotan and the Siegfried um, Stellung. But we call them, you know, we tend to just lump them together as the Hindenburg. Um, line. To do that, they need to put hundreds of thousands of labourers to work. This is not an easy job at all. And and while they're doing that, they can't be doing things like planning big attacks or anything. Um, they've got to divert a lot of resources to it. And and one thing we know about the winter of 1916-17, they were not exactly flush with resources and food. So this is a big drain um, on the Germans. It's not the maddest thing they come up with, and you can sort of see some some decent sense in it, particularly it's, it's going to enable them to shorten their line, which they, they're going to do, um, but also they make some bizarre political decisions over the winter of 1916-17, uh, including unrestricted submarine warfare, which is really going to knock the Americans, uh, yeah. for one thing. Not quite as much as getting the Mexicans to attack them, though. Yeah, and then we promise you can have Texas back, which uh, backfired in their face. Um, I think it'd be useful to talk about what was said in the summer, that the Somme was tragic, but not a waste of time. Um, 
and I want to pull you, Lockie, because we're moving into your PhD territory now, um, on the immediate impact of what had been learned by the British. Because we we said very grandiosely there are lessons are learned that contribute to winning the war. But over the winter, are they already being put into practice things that they've picked up during this battle? What happens and how do the Allies approach it in terms of tactical development and putting lessons into practice? Yeah, you bet. So, um, first thing... You can like flex in your hands, like, right, this is what I've done my whole life doing. Steps onto soapbox and, and shuffles papers, yeah. yeah. Um, let's go back to Chantilly for a second, um, because one of the things that came out of the Chantilly conference, there's no talk of the Nivelle Offensive just yet. The plan at Chantilly is to restart the Somme Offensive as soon as the weather can allow it in the new year, mm-hmm. all right? And so that's the message that Haig comes back to his army commanders. Uh, with and Goff feels like he's got a decent position now that he's astride the Ankara on- and has made some decent progress to get a bit of traction uh, going. And if he can, you know, go through uh, and get Puisier and Goncourt and and Ashier Le Petit, he can unpick the Loupart line, and then he's on to Bapal. All right, and that's that's good news. And Goff's aggressive. We know we know he is. Um, the units themselves, with the bad weather, get a chance to come out of the line and train and take on some of the lessons that have been learned. Um, and so training focus for a lot of these units will be on musketry, okay? Where they had been trained before to follow an officer, bomb along a trench line, charge with the bayonet. Actually, that's not much good against a German machine gun in a shell hole 300 yards away. You're much better levelling your rifle at him and, and taking a few shots. And so, yeah, skill with your rifle. Otherwise, you're just carrying a big, heavy lump of wood and metal, aren't you? So skill with the rifle is going to form part of it. And there were six-day courses run um, at army school level uh, for, for every man needed to do a basic course, but especially with the, the, the number of new recruits uh, coming in to replace those Men lost. Um, bombing and bayonet fighting would continue. That's a skill that they can't lose. Uh, also things like Bangalore torpedoes coming into play for breaking wire. Okay, we haven't found a decent gap in the German wire in uh, in the situation that um, Holmes was, was describing. Well, we'll blow one. Then we won't wait for the artillery to do it for us. Um, skills like rapid wiring and consolidating a position. All right, the Germans are probably going to counterattack our position, so we want to be straight out there, not just holding the lines that the Germans had left behind that we have now captured. Actually, we're going to get ourselves uh, maybe a 100 yards or so in front of that position, dig in there so that their artillery can't find where we are without sending a plane up first of all, and then get it wired up quickly to stop any counterattack. Uh, Lewis gunners, more Lewis gunners. One of the lessons of the Somme is that these things are brilliant. All right, That's why they were giving the small arms ammunition to their Lewis gunners and the, and the riflemen themselves were taking German rifles. They want to keep their Lewis guns going. Right? We're getting to the stage where we can afford to give each platoon a Lewis gun. All right? And they're great for subduing and suppressing the enemy, but also catching Germans out in the open and gunning them down. Yeah, um, for people that don't know, this is a light machine gun. This is a machine gun that doesn't require a team of three, is it, people, to lag it around? No, you can fire from the hip, actually. Yeah, a big and, enough bloke can fire from the hip with this thing, can't he? Yeah, and that's that's certain, and particularly the Australians, uh, 2nd Australian Division is one of the ones that I've been looking at, and they do, they manufacture, even before there were official things, they manufacture their own little harnesses so that a, a man can walk along spraying bullets out from their Lewis guns. Mm-hmm. All right, and that's over the winter of 1916-17 as well. Officer training. Um, tactical exercises for officers and uh, map reading and compass 
um, awareness, that sort of stuff, and also sniping and scouting. If the Germans are going to lay in shell holes um, with a, a, a rifle, then we're damn well going to find them and kill them. Um, so all of these things, all these, you know, these divisions that had had such a hard time, most of them get at least a month out of the line where they can bring these skills into play. And not only that, you also have a bit of a bonfire of the bad divisional commanders as well. You're going to do a chapter of this, aren't you? Well, it's, it's, it's quite fun. You know, some bonfire of, get... of the divisional generals is <laughs> a chapter heading for the PhD. Some, some of them get, you know, one of them, I think, Eighth Division's commander Havelock Hudson gets sent off to India to become, you know, adjutant general out there, and replaced by one of 63rd Division's brigadiers, um, William Henneker, who's already done well fighting along the Ankara, and he's going to do well fighting with Eighth Division um, as well. 32nd Division's commander gets binned uh, as it happens. I think if you fail on in in the early stages of the Somme, and then you fail in the later stages again, especially with Goff as your army commander, you've got a, a short life expectancy um, there. So he gets canned too. They have a they have a little problem with divisional command actually, thirty second division, because the boat they bring in get gets sick, and I think it's the commander of the Royal Artillery in that division who nominally heads it with his GSO one supporting him, but they go through this training process. Um, as well. They chop and change with the brigade, brigade commanders too uh, and there's a whole load of weeding out of those they didn't feel cut the mustard. Now 32nd Division is one that I want to come back to because they come back as well uh, and in the middle of January funnily enough they're back on Redan Ridge uh, again where they'd, where they'd lost those, those blokes um, but they were there with a new mindset uh, which is really interesting because they come into the line mid-January and um, they're immediately aggressive uh, and they know the German outpost system that's out there uh, and so they decide to take it on uh, and so the 20th of January um, they occupy a German post uh, that the Germans had abandoned actually, it was a bit close to the new British front line so they'd left it alone um, 32nd Division occupy it um, 21st of January they occupy another one uh, and consolidate the first one um, there doesn't seem to be much activity in response from the Germans. So on the 22nd, orders are handed out. Let's keep doing this. Uh, and so on the 24th, they stick out four new outposts, uh, getting closer to the to the German main line of resistance at Tentry Alley. Um, over the next eight nights, they proceed to keep sticking out posts and keep getting closer to the main German line. Uh, and we get to the 30th of January, and the Germans have, have clearly noticed by this stage what's going on. Hang on a minute. They keep sticking out posts closer and closer to us. So they raid three of them, and these raids get beaten back um, with quite heavy loss because these outposts have been well-constructed and well-put together because it's what they've trained to do over the winter. Over the next couple of days... They don't, there's clearly food for thought with the German raid, so they don't stick out any new posts, but they also see German uh, soldiers strengthening their positions behind the main German line, so they can sort of see what's happening um, here. And then on the 2nd of February, 10 new posts stuck out right up close to the German front line with fighting patrols going out as well. There's then a week of identifying where the German dugouts are, in the next line, and on the 10th of February, an assault on that main German line, and they capture it. And in so this that, is as opposed to going over the top. Yeah, if they'd gone over the top from them, from their, where their front line had been, you know, they would have had probably 300 yards or so of mucky old muddy 
horrible ground to try and cover, barbed wire to pick through, and potentially Germans in shell holes to dig out as well. Mm. All right, the fact that they're close to within 60 yards of the German line before assaulting. I mean, they made they took more ground in that kind of outpost phase than they had done with the with the assaults before. It's, it's amazing, isn't it, that it was that quick. Um, so certainly it wasn't futile in terms of finding a way to break the deadlock on the Western Front at all, was it? Well, no. The and it's, it's, the Somme, that is. it's also really encouraging because in a more traditional style, the other side of the Ancre, a week later, um, there's the assault on Boom Ravine, which could have been a total disaster, by the way, because there's a big intelligence failing. Some deserters basically give up the plan of the attack. It went in anyway, with the British unaware that the Germans had heard the plan, and wasn't a total failure, actually. They advanced a kilometre in the in the centre of the line, a few hundred yards either side, and captured Boom Ravine itself. So, you know, there's there's progress there, even though the Germans knew they were coming. And that was that was kind of enough for the Germans at that stage. So a week after the Boom Ravine assault, they pull out of their... Um, lines where they had been before and move back to a, a prepared position. It's not the Hindenburg line, um, but they put, fall back to their one of their regal positions, uh, which then comes under fire itself. This has all been really encouraging for, for, for the British, by the way, and Haig's given the go-ahead to Rawlinson to say, look, make it look like we're restarting the whole Somme offensive again. So on the 4th of March, um, they launch an attack. It's 8th Division launch, launch an attack at Boucheven, um, which I really like as a, a kind of a, attention to detail uh, one because they were going to they were going to try and form up at night time. Okay, fine, reasonable enough. It, the weather had frozen by this stage; it had gone very very cold indeed. They were gra- they were on ground that was overlooked by the German position, so they couldn't just form up you know during the daytime. They had to do it at night. Trouble was, ground so hard they couldn't cut jump out jump off trenches, so they were literally just going to have to sit out at night in no man's land, in the freezing cold, and wait for the barrage to go over. And they were dead worried about giving the game away. So if anyone coughs, for example, uh, and the Germans hear them, flares go up and they all get gunned down. And Mm. so what they they tried to do was um, get a supply of cough lozenges for them. And these ended up not coming. uh, And so they issued chewing gum uh, instead. And, And that seemed to work pretty effectively. Um, and so that, that's the kind of attention to detail, as well as, you know, flank protection and, you know, a, a well-timed and accurate artillery barrage. Those are the tickets of the game. But, you know, the attention to detail by early 1917 really is something. Um, and, that, and that then precipitates the whole withdrawal to the Hindenburg line. And then you're talking about a gain of 25 miles or so. Now, if you do factor that into the Somme offensive, and it is a direct consequence of the Somme offensive, this is a big deal. Um, and I don't, I don't get into the whole kind of business of singing the praises of taking territory for territory's sake, necessarily. But I tell you what, all that ground given up came in flipping handy in 1918 when the Germans launched their spring offensive because it puts a decent bit of buffer ground between the Germans and Amiens. And the rail yep. junction. Absolutely. Lockie, thank you so much. Holmes, thank you for coming on um, to Mark Remembrance Day. I think, like, when you add this to the other one we've done, I think we've given people something to think about in terms of the context of the Battle of the Somme. And while we remember the fallen, um, putting it in, putting their sacrifice kind of into context and showing why it happened and, and how it wasn't, wasn't entirely futile and in vain.
Join us tomorrow when Trevor Barnes will be with us to talk all about his new book, which is the amazing story of the Portland Spiring. It's bonkers, it's Cold War action, don't miss it. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.